0: Well,
1: this is Welcome to Hearing Voices, and this is Insanity. One hour of stories about going crazy. Hearing Voices is, is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts, and distributed by National Public Radio.
2: This is insane.
1: My name is Scott Carrier, and I'll be your host. I'm not a doctor, but I do have a master's degree in communication. I want you to know that I'm here for you, no matter what happens. Some of these stories are kind of intense. So if you have meds, now's a good time to take them. If you ran out of meds, maybe start by washing your hands three times and then get some tinfoil and make a hat that covers every part of your head except your ears. If things get too strange, pour green jello into your speakers. That always works for me.
3: That is what caused the trouble. Look out, please get me up. If you do this, you can go and jump right here in the lake. I know who they are. They are French people. All right, look out, look out. my memory is gone.
1: This is William Burroughs and the disposable heroes of hypocrisy.
3: Well, this is a But I am dying. dying. No, you're not. But I am dying. No, you're not.
4: My parents have a friend who did electroshock. That's the reason they recommended it to me. Peter came back and he even made jokes about being depressed before. It just did wonders for him, they said. For me, it was a matter of getting off the lame drugs that put me in a stupor, but didn't elevate my spirits. Depakote just made me feel less of everything, and that didn't seem to be the answer. And as soon as I heard the doctor talk about ECT, or electroconvulsive therapy, that's the new name for electroshock, it made a lot more sense. It causes a very brief epileptic seizure, and it rewires the brain. Cool. Even if it goes really badly, it could be a good story. The next day, I'm wheeled into the treatment room, where the doctor takes offense to my DAT recorder. Aren't you supposed to ask permission before you tape this? I mumble something about being crazy and beg his forgiveness, while the DAT keeps on recording. The nurse has injected me with some disgusting fluid, which feels like she's crushing my arm in a hot vice. The fluid slowly spreads in each direction so that by the time it's halfway up my bicep and halfway down my forearm, I've entered the realm of living darkness. They say I sat up and started pushing people away in the middle of the procedure, so they'd like to keep me there a couple of days, just to make sure I'm okay. The biggest side effect is the loss of, um... Oh, whatchamacallit... Memory. It's temporary, someone says. You might forget some stuff for about a month or so, but it'll come back to you. I nod and look blankly back at a face I vaguely recognize. Dad? Today we had Salisbury steak and mashed potatoes for lunch. Leon, one of the patients, didn't come to lunch, though. He was passed out in a reclining chair in front of the television. I haven't seen Leon open his eyes yet. Every now and then, though, he'll try and pull his skimpy robe up over his dark shoulders. One of the nurses on duty will come up to him and say, No, no, Leon. You're in public here. Keep your clothes on. Then Leon will find a frog way back in his throat and spit up a lunger at the direction of the television. His eyes remain closed. He narrowly misses Courtney Cox of the sitcom Friends. I could learn a thing or two from Leon. Now it's 9 p.m., and I've got a whole day of nothing to do tomorrow. The books on the shelves are hardbound, Reader's Digest editions, and all the movies on VHS are romantic chick flicks like You've Got Mail. The carpets are a gray-green buncle, and the chairs are a knit of violet and slate blue. I'm sitting in one of the violet and blue chairs. Marilyn Monroe is playing with two kids by the pool on the American Movie Classics channel, and Leon, with his eyes closed, has found another lunger.
5: The Baltimore County School Board have decided to expel Dexter from the entire public school system. Oh, Mr.
0: Kirk, I'm as upset as you to learn Dexter's two and three, but surely expulsion is not the answer.
6: I'm afraid expulsion is the only answer. It's the opinion of the entire staff that Dexter is criminally insane. Same, same, same. same, same.
1: I was hired to interview men and women in the state of Utah who received Medicaid support for treatment of mental illnesses generally diagnosed as schizophrenia. I had little understanding of schizophrenia before I began and I have little more understanding now. I took the job because I had no other. I took the job because I just quit my study job, my professional job, after realizing that what I wanted more than anything was to put my boss on the floor and stand on his throat and watch him gag then my wife moved out took the kids and everything she said I've thought about it and I really think it's the best thing for me at this time in my life and so I took the job interviewing schizophrenics because it was offered to me and because it was all there seemed to be And it seemed somehow predestined, a karmic response that could not be avoided. It would only be temporary, something to get through the summer. And I was told that they needed someone willing to drive around the state, through the small towns, searching out individuals who were often transient and prone to hiding. I like to drive, I like to travel, and I like the idea of pursuit. So I took the job, and did the job, and my life will never be the same. The patient is 21 years old and has lived with his parents since his discharge from the army. He has no friends, no recreational activities, and no social life. He spends his time writing and reading, but these activities do not give him any pleasure. He has lost weight, has general anxiety and loss of libido, and occasional feelings of unreality. He is worried about his unpredictable behavior. For example, getting down on all fours and chewing the grass because he was thinking what it would be like to be a cow. The patient is 25 years old and believes that she is the devil and therefore responsible for all the evil in the world. She's not been out of her house for seven days and only comes down from her room for meals. A few days ago, her mother walked into her room and found her crying. She asked her mother what was the most painful punishment that one human being could inflict upon another. The mother tried to get the reason for this question, and her daughter mumbled something about the devil having to be punished for the benefit of humanity, something about having to die for his sins. When the mother asked her if she still thought she was the devil, she answered, Let's not get into that again. It only upsets you, and you don't believe me anyway, even when the evidence is all around you, plain for you to see. The people I interview are all so sad, so lonely, with such thin souls, like ghosts and demons have invaded their hearts and are sucking their souls dry. A person's soul should be like an ocean, but a schizophrenic soul is like a pool of rain in a parking lot. They suffer, and they are completely alone in their suffering, and there's nothing I can do, nothing anyone can do, to bring them back. I come home at night and cry. I sob like a three-year-old. Today, halfway through an interview with a man in Tooele, he says, I have a crystal in my pouch. Do you want to see it? I say, okay, and he takes it out. A normal crystal the size of a large paper clip, and he says, I can look through this and it will tell me whether you're a good person or a bad person. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to look through it or not? My first thought is to say, Do you want to go on with the interview? Maybe when we're done, you can look through the crystal. But then I realize that he's really asking me to take his test, just like I'm asking him to take mine. I come into his house. I ask him very personal questions, and I expect him to answer honestly. And why should he? So I say, okay, go ahead. And he puts the crystal up to his eye, turns it clockwise and counterclockwise, back and forth, squinting, looking me up and down. And he says, I can't tell for sure. I'm going to have to read your mind. Here, take my hand. He holds out his right hand with the crystal resting in the palm. I take his hand and he puts his left hand over mine and squeezes it tight and shakes it and goes into a small spasm. Then he lets go and sort of sits back like he's exhausted. He asks me if I felt anything, and I say, maybe a little, and he says, I sent you a message. I put it in your mind. I told you what is wrong with me. I'm not supposed to figure out what's wrong with these people. I'm just supposed to ask the questions and score the answers from one to seven. This is partly because I'm not a doctor and might get something going that I wouldn't know how to contain. But it's mainly because my supervisors want clean data. They want all the people asking the questions to be doing it in the same way. I'm not supposed to get emotional. I'm not supposed to let the patient get emotional. The therapy part of the county mental health system is in another department. I wouldn't even know what number to call, and I've been told more than once not to worry about it. I should never have let him take the crystal out of his pouch. I drove around all day trying to find a Navajo man. He lives very close to the Four Corners, The cross where Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona meet. It's all dirt roads, a house every five miles or so. No addresses, no phones. I stop at every house and knock on the door, but either nobody's home or nobody will answer. I flag down every car that passes and ask directions, and the people offer complicated directions that I follow as best as possible, sometimes driving for 20 or 30 miles. But it's always the wrong place, or nobody's home, or there just isn't a house there at all. Driving around, I think about how I have some of the same problems as the people I interview. I'm angry, depressed, prone to paranoid delusions, and I worry a lot. Up to now, I thought these were common problems, and that I was more or less able to control them. But now, I don't know. I feel like I'm just faking it. Eventually, late in the afternoon, I find the man, or at least I think he's the man. I'm a third of the way through the test before I realize he's not the right guy. When was your last visit to a mental health clinic? I don't go to the clinic. When did you last see a doctor? I don't have a doctor. Do you blame yourself for anything you've done or not done? No. Have you felt more self-confident than usual? No. No. Have you heard voices or other things that weren't there or that other people couldn't hear or seen things that weren't there? And he says, I think you want to talk to my son. And I ask him what his son's name is and he says, same as mine. I come back the next morning and interview the son in the kitchen. They make coffee for me on a propane camp stove as the house has no electricity. The son is 19 years old, a good-looking kid, tall, healthy, says he used to run cross-country in high school. He seems to be fine, but as I go through the questions, he starts to fix his eyes on mine, a direct, almost hypnotic stare, straight into my head, like he's trying to pull me in and trap me. I try to look back, to look just as deeply into his mind, but it's like looking into a cave. He says he hears voices, satanic voices, and that he worries a lot about his shoes, that they're not the right kind, not the kind he sees on MTV. I can't tell if he's sick or if he's just trying to torture me, and I drive away thinking I don't know anything about this disease that I know even less than when I started. I spent two days driving around and I made 30 bucks, and I feel really, really tired. The house is dark as all the windows have heavy curtains pulled nearly shut the curtains over the big picture window in the living room are open just a bit and the light cuts through like a laser beam and hits the red shag carpet throwing up small dust particles and cigarette ash two feet away from the light near the television is a slice of pizza lying upside down in the carpet I'm interviewing the woman a mother and her teenage daughter is on the phone talking to her boyfriend, or rather a series of boyfriends, who call and call, and all of them want her to go out right now, but her mother won't let her. She's trying to answer my questions, trying to concentrate and be polite, but she's mainly listening to what her daughter is saying on the phone, and will suddenly switch from saying, no, no, I've been feeling fine, I haven't had a relapse in months, to screaming out, is that John? I told you never to talk to him again. Or, who is it? Is it a boy? You can't go out. Tell him he has to come over here. I can't stop looking at the slice of pizza on the carpet. I keep looking at the slice of pizza because it's the only clue that the woman is sick. I mean, she has a teenage daughter and a dirty house, and maybe she shouldn't try to wear makeup to bed, but these are not necessarily symptoms of schizophrenia. She seems to be fine, just worn out, until I get to the question, have you been worrying a lot? And she says, yes, she has. She's been worrying a lot that the elders of the church, the Mormon church, will take her daughter away from her. And I ask her, why? And she says, because she stopped taking her medication. And I ask her, why did you stop taking your medication? And she says that the only reason she takes it is because she told her bishop that she was visited by the archangel Gabriel and that she'd had sex with him. And then she was also visited by the Archangel Michael and that she'd had sex with both of them at once and that they'd ravished her almost every night. So her bishop made her go to a doctor and the doctor gave her some pills and she took the pills and the angels stopped coming. The bishop and the elders had told her that if she had sex with any more angels, they'd take her daughter away. So I asked her again why she stopped taking her medication and she says, I'm lonely. I miss them. I want them to come back. Today, in a restaurant, eating lunch between interviews, I decided to take the test. I answered the questions and scored myself appropriately, and at some point I realized I wasn't doing so well. I decided not to even add up the points, because then I'd be left with a score, and I'd never forget it. If I were to write a report on myself, it would sound something like this. The patient is 36 years old and lives alone since his wife left him three weeks ago. She took the kids and all the silverware except for a large knife and a bowl and a coffee cup. The patient admits that her leaving may have had something to do with the fact that, without warning, he completely gutted the house, tore out all the walls and ceilings, All the lath and plaster right down to the studs. He says he did this in order to live like a primitive. When asked if he was successful, he says it was the first step in the right direction. The patient is a 36 year old male who lives alone since his wife and children left him two months ago. He says there's a darkness that separates him from other people, a heavy darkness like looking at a person from the bottom of a well. He believes that if he could say the right words, then the darkness would go away. He says he sometimes knows the right words, but cannot say them. Other times, he can't even think of the words to say. The patient is 36 years old and lives alone since his wife and children left him three months ago. Last week he went fishing in the San Juans and now believes that there's no better fisherman than himself. He says, I can't tell you about it because talking about fishing is silly, like farting and tap dancing at the same time. All I can say is I walk around in the water and I know the instant a fish will jump for the fly. I cut open their stomachs and squeeze out the bugs in my hand. Study what they eat, how it all gets digested, even the exoskeleton and wings. He says he was sick before, but now he's okay, and that it was the fly rod, just holding the rod in his hand, that cured him. His house is clean, the electricity is on, the walls have been sheetrocked and painted white. He says, I'll have to ask her, beg her, and maybe she'll come back. You've been listening to This Is Insanity, stories about disturbed mental states from hearing voices. William S. Burroughs started it off. That story about electroshock therapy was by one of our far-flung correspondents who wishes anonymity. The Avalanches did Frontier Psychiatrist, and I wrote The Test for This American Life 10 years ago. I'm fine now. Really, everything is fine. Coming up, Joe Frank is pathologically challenged by time, and Sound Portraits documents the experimental procedure of ice-pick lobotomy.
7: Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com.
1: Welcome back to This is Insanity from Hearing Voices. I'm your host, Scott Carrier. I'm not a doctor, but this is radiotherapy for your mental
8: health. Just try to relax. I've been trying to keep busy. I go to concerts and art openings and the spontaneous coming together of flash mobs from online chat rooms. Last week I attended a singles dinner for professionals over 40 given at a trendy restaurant in Brentwood. I've tried male bonding. I've beaten a drum in the woods with middle-aged, balding men and learned that I might be gay. Certainly, everyone else was. But this evening, I could barely summon the strength to come to the recording studio. And as soon as I got here, I wanted to go back home, undress, shower, go to bed, and never come back. I can't stand this. Sometimes I think of killing myself. How would I do it? I don't know. Pills. A razor blade in a bathtub. A plastic bag over my head. Leaping from a railroad platform. Going to a stockyard. Getting in line behind some cattle. And having myself slaughtered. I think we were put here to suffer. But why? To gain wisdom? I don't believe suffering necessarily leads to wisdom. I think, in most cases, it just damages and crushes people. Evolution has not been kind to us. Moving toward a bigger and bigger brain has been an aberrant development. We think too much. We feel too much. Would that we were still pairs of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. There must be an answer. There has to be something. We haven't been placed here by chance, for no purpose whatsoever. I just can't believe that. There must be a reason why we're here. And yet, the universe is so vast, so immense, as to be beyond our ability to comprehend it. It's a mystery. And what is religious scripture but a way to come to grips with the imponderables of life? Stories written by ancient, nomadic, sheep-herding desert people. People who lived in tents, made war on each other with swords, shields, and clubs, who wrote their laws on stone tablets, and then smashed them. How can we possibly relate to them? Not one of them ever made a phone call, complained about a table, misplaced a remote, joined a gym, waited anxiously for the results of a CAT scan not one of them was ever humiliated in a bar by a younger man, or ever had his date get out of a car at the end of the evening and say, well, that was strange. So how can any one of them understand our world? Not to mention the childish stories that represent the foundation upon which our entire civilization rests. A burning bush, a virgin birth, a woman created from a rib. A talking serpent. A blind man pulling down the pillars of a great temple, killing thousands. A man swallowed by a whale who escapes to tell the story. Another man who lives 900 years and still can't pay off his daughter's wedding. Is that credible?
0: The
6: top blue, got Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I, I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone calling someone or something I can see. Turning out of that black hole, two l- luminous discs of the eyes. It might be a face, might be almost oh. oh. a oh. heavens. Something be wriggling back. out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. But, oh yeah, I can see the thing's body. Now it's large, and large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seems to quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can. I find words. Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description so I can take a new position. Hold on, will you, please? I'll be right back in a minute.
1: You heard Joe Frank from his program, Times Arrow, and this is the 1938 Mercury Theater broadcast of the War of the Worlds.
6: We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey.
1: In 1946, psychiatrist Walter J. Freeman launched a radical new era in the treatment of mental illness by performing the first transorbital, or ice-pick, lobotomy. Howard Dully underwent the procedure when he was 12 years old. He tells this story, produced by Sound Portraits.
3: We went into a room and there was a stretcher there.
5: He came in with something of a flourish and he had his valise.
3: And the first person was brought in and strapped down, given an electroshock. He had an instrument. To me, it looked like a nail, a great big nail. It
7: was silver.
0: It looked like a screwdriver, only a sharp point.
2: It was an ice pick. An ice pick. They call it an ice pick, but of course it was a surgical instrument. And then he held the ice pick parallel to the nose. slid it under the eyelid. And he tapped it above the eyeball. Through the orbit of the eye. So there'd be a little crunch. And then he shoved it up into the forward part of the brain. And then he did the other side. He...
5: He took the probes, he put his hands on each one, and then he twirled them kind of in an egg-beater fashion for a little while in the frontal part of the brain. And then he would take a picture of it. Then he just took hold of each probe and pulled it uh, with a big yank, and that was that.
0: It took between 7 and 8 minutes. It was very quick.
8: The patient went out, the next patient was ready to come in and had his procedure done, and then the next patient came in.
3: There was total silence among those of us who were watching. It was riveting.
0: This is Walter Freeman, MD, PhD.
5: I'm 72 years old
9: now. This is Howard Dully. In 1960, when I was 12, I was lobotomized by this man, Dr. Walter Freeman. Until this moment, I haven't shared this fact with anyone except my wife and a few close friends. Now I'm sharing it with you. In the past four weeks, I've come 7,000 miles chasing up patients. This is one of the only recordings of Dr. Freeman's voice. He made it in 1968, eight years after he operated on me. If you saw me, you'd never know I had a lobotomy. The only thing you'd notice is that I'm very tall and weigh about 350 pounds. But I've always felt different. wondered if something's missing from my soul. I have no memory of the operation and never had the courage to ask my family about it. So two years ago, I set out on a journey to learn everything I could about my lobotomy. Lobotomy was uh, done at that time. uh... Well, hi. Hi, how do you do? Frank Freeman. Howard Dully. I found Walter Freeman's son, Frank, in a little apartment only an hour's drive from my house. Pleasure to meet you, by God. (laughs) Frank Freeman is 79 years old and works as a security guard. I ask him what he remembers about the procedure his father created in 1946. We had several ice picks that just
0: cluttered the back of the kitchen drawer. And the first ice pick came right out of our drawer. A humble ice pick to go right into the frontal lobes. It was, from a cosmetic standpoint, it was diabolical. (laughs) Just observing this thing, it was horrible. (laughs) Gruesome. (laughs)
9: Frank Freeman tells me that the operation was invented in Portugal in 1935. The original procedure involved drilling holes in the patient's skull to get to the brain. Walter Freeman brought the operation to America and gave it a name, the lobotomy. Freeman and his surgeon partner performed the first American lobotomy in 1936. It made the front page of the New York Times. They called it surgery of the soul. Walter Freeman and his lobotomy became famous, but soon he grew impatient. My father decided there must be a better way. He set out to create a new procedure, one that didn't require drilling holes in the head, the transorbital lobotomy. Freeman was convinced that his 10-minute lobotomy was destined to revolutionize medicine and spent the rest of his life trying to prove his point.
0: I guess you'd call it a magnificent obsession. I've never been able to sit down and talk with one of my father's patients. Been a darn good experience to meet you.
9: Yeah, it's opened my eyes some oh, great. I was age twelve when I had it. Good heavens. I still haven't sat with my father and talked about it.
0: Yeah. So, mm-hmm.
9: yeah. yeah. So are you yeah. are you proud of your father? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He was terrific. He was really quite a remarkable pioneer
9: lobotomist.
0: I wish he could have gotten further. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Happy
9: trails, everybody. (laughs) The age of the ice pick lobotomy started out with promise. Walter Freeman performed the procedure for the first time in his Washington, D.C. office on January 17, 1946. His patient was a housewife named Ellen Ionesco. Her daughter, Angeline Forrester, was there that day.
0: She was absolutely violently suicidal beforehand. After the transorbital lobotomy, there was nothing. It stopped immediately. It was just peace. I don't know how to explain it to you. It was like turning a coin over that quick. So whatever he did, he did something right.
9: Today, Ellen Ionesco is 88 years old and lives about a mile from her daughter in a nursing home in Virginia. Walter Freeman kept in touch with his first transorbital patient for the rest of his life. He was just a great man, that's all I can say.
7: Do you remember what his face looked like, Mama?
9: I don't remember.
7: Do you remember his office?
3: I don't remember that either. I don't remember nothing else. Well, I'm very tired.
0: Do you want
7: to go lie down? or do you want I to remember
3: sit sitting here? on his lap and his, his beard was
0: pointed and it was very soft. As a child you kind of see into people's souls and he was good. At least then. I don't know what happened after that. I wish he hadn't gotten quite so out of hand. By
9: 1949, the transorbital lobotomy had caught on. Walter Freeman lobotomized patients in mental institutions across the country. He narrated this instructional movie promoting the procedure. This
0: is a boy of 19. Dreamy, sensitive individual, interested particularly in the current musical idiom of bebop. Transorbital lobotomy was performed on August 1st. Within a few days, the patient resumed playing the saxophone. Hallucinations
7: subsided.
2: It was a terribly crude procedure. I interviewed Dr. Elliot Valenstein, who wrote a book about the history of lobotomies. There were some very unpleasant results, very tragic results and some excellent results, and, and a lot in between. Why, why do you think the procedure became so popular? Well, primarily because there was no other way of treating people who were seriously mentally ill. The drugs weren't introduced until the mid-1950s in the United States, and the psychiatric institutions were overcrowded. They were willing to try almost anything. Mm. I think the problem with the whole lobotomy period was that it spread like wildfire, that there was a lot of publicity, a lot of exaggerated success initially. There was a lot of demand for the operations because there were many parents and family members who were desperately in need of help and not getting any... And it spread not only to seriously ill patients, but to a lot of people who were not that seriously ill.
0: The operator left the upper eyelid. By
2: 1950,
9: Walter Freeman's lobotomy revolution was in full swing. Newspapers described it as easier than curing a toothache. Freeman was a showman and liked to shock his audience of doctors and nurses by performing two handed lobotomies, hammering ice picks into both eyes at once. In 1952, he performed 228 lobotomies in a two-week period in West Virginia alone, lobotomizing 25 women in a single day. Through it all, Freeman's fame grew, but he wasn't satisfied. He decided that his 10-minute lobotomy could be used on others besides the incurably mentally ill. Hello. Hi. I'm Howard Dully. Good to see you.
5: It's good to see you.
9: I fly to Atlanta, Georgia, to meet Carol Noel. Carol tells me her mother suffered from severe headaches. In 1950, she was referred to Walter Freeman, who prescribed a transorbital lobotomy.
3: That's when the fun began.
9: The procedure cured Carol's mom of her headaches, but left her with the mind of a child.
3: Did she worry about stuff?
9: Nope.
3: (laughs) Didn't worry. Just as Freeman promised, she didn't worry. She had no concept of social graces. If someone was having a gathering at their home, she had no problem with going into their house and taking a seat, too.
9: Hmm. Not a yep, problem. There you go.
3: We have the Anna Ruth's picture from back there. That's her. Is she pretty? she She was so smart. She was so smart. But she had no place to put it. The only outlet she had was beating every pinball machine in town and knowing how many pennies were in the jar at the carnival. Mm. You know. She was the greatest playmate we ever had and the best friend, and we loved her to death. But I never remember calling her mama or mommy or anything. (laughs) I never even thought of my mother as my daughter's grandmother, and I never even took my daughter to see her. Not one time. So she never even got to have that.
9: So needless to say, to ask you if you think about this a lot would be an understatement.
3: I make sure I never... Forget. Forget it. Do you ever wonder how come it is? Is that we're at the age we are, and we and we can't seem to just say, "Okay, that was then. This is now." Why we even? Why
5: why are you bothering?
9: Because it's not okay. Yeah, it's not finished.
5: My name is Doctor J. Lawrence Poole. I'm now 97 years old. I dedicated my life to brain surgery. I did not approve of Dr. Freeman's ice pick method, no. I said, Walter, I don't approve of this procedure. He knew that. Dr. Freeman did some in his office and would send the patient home by taxi cab. Just as you go to a dentist and get a filling and send them home by taxi. And I tell you, it gave me a sense of horror. How would you like to step into a psychiatrist's office and have him take out a sterilized ice pick and shove it into the brain over your eyeball? Would you like the idea? No. In
9: 1954, with the introduction of the first psychiatric drug, Thorazine, Walter Freeman's lobotomy revolution was over. Almost overnight, there was no more demand for his services. The procedure was obsolete, but Walter Freeman refused to let go. He opened a small office in California and kept on performing the procedure. The office happened to be only a couple miles from my home. Hello, David. Yes, I am. I fly to Washington D.C. to visit the George Washington University archive, which holds 24 boxes of Walter Freeman's sealed files. I request to see my records. I'm the first patient ever to do so.
8: Uh, if you'd go ahead and fill this out, because my
9: file has everything: a photo of me with the ice picks in my eyes, medical bills. But all I care about are the notes. I want to understand why this was done to me. Mrs. Dully came in to talk about her stepson, who is now 12 years old. It's pretty much as I suspected. My real mother died of cancer when I was five. My dad remarried, and his new wife, my stepmother, hated me. I never understood why, but it was clear she'd do anything to get rid of me. Evidently, she heard about Dr. Freeman and figured he could help. Mrs. Dully called up to say that Howard has been unbelievably defiant with a savage look on his face. And at times she is almost He doesn't react either to love or to punishment. He objects to going to bed, but then sleeps well. He does a good deal of daydreaming, and when asked about it, he says, I don't know. He turns the room's lights on when there's broad sunlight outside. and strange. He hates it. to wash. <laughs> Okay. After a couple weeks of building her case, she brought me to meet Dr. Freeman. October 26, 1960, Howard is rather tall, slender, somewhat withdrawn type of individual. The first interview today was largely in a matter of getting acquainted. He told about his paper route, which brings him some $20 each month, and he's saving up to get a record player. Howard is rather evasive about talking about things that go on in the home. November thirtieth, is my birthday. Mrs. Dully came in for a talk about Howard. Things have gotten much worse, and she can barely endure it. I explained to Mrs. Dully that the family should consider the possibility of changing Howard's personality by means of transorbital lobotomy. Mrs. Dully said it was up to her husband that I would have to talk with him and make it stick. December 3, 1960, Mr. and Mrs. Dully have apparently decided to have Howard operated on I suggested them not tell Howard anything about it. December 17, 1960. I performed transorbital lobotomy. This is the physician's service report. Transorbital lobotomy. A sharp instrument was thrust through the orbital roof and moved so as to sever brain pathways in the frontal lobes. $200 for surgery, so the whole thing was 200 bucks. Well, that's pretty cheap. How fantastic. January 4th, 1961. I told Howard what I had done to him today, and he took it without a quiver. He sits quietly, grinning most of the time and offering nothing. Then I was supposed to fight all this, huh? No way. Twelve-year-olds couldn't stand against all that. Just wasn't fair. When my stepmother saw the operation didn't turn me into a vegetable, she got me out of the house. I was made a ward of the state. It took me years to get my life together. Through it all, I've been haunted by questions. Did I do something to deserve this? Can I ever be normal? And most of all, why did my dad let this happen? In 44 years, we've never discussed it once, not even after my stepmother died. It took me a year of working on this project before I even got up the courage to write him a letter. Dear Dad, I am writing you this letter because I've gotten my records on the operation I had as a boy and I have some questions to ask. I have not asked them before this out of love for you and I'm afraid that asking will change your love for me. The operation has haunted me all my life. Now that I'm 56 years old, I would like to sit down with you. and I couldn't believe you it. Knew. My dad agreed to talk. I'm here with my dad. I have waited for over 40 years for this moment. Thank you for being here. With, with.
5: I tell you anything that needs
9: to be answered. Okay, so we're here to talk about my uh, transorbital lobotomy. So how did you find Dr. Freeman?
5: I didn't. She did. She took you. I don't. I think she tried some other doctors that said, "Uh huh, there's nothing wrong here. Yeah, you, 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 he's a normal boy." It was the stepmother problem. My question would be
9: naturally, why would you let it happen to me if that was the case?
5: I got manipulated, pure and simple. I was sold a bill of goods. She sold me, and Freeman sold me, and I
9: didn't like it. Did you ever meet Dr. Freeman, and uh, what was he like?
5: I only met him, I think, the one time. He described how accurate it was and that he had practiced the cutting, On literally a carload of grapefruit, getting the right move in the right turn.
9: That's what he told me. (laughs) Have you ever seen a picture of the operation? No. Would you mind if I showed you one? I show my dad the photograph of me at 12 years old with the ice picks in my eyes. Oh. The thing I'm intrigued by is how
5: you look so calm. Is there anything in this that you regret
9: at all? (sighs) See,
5: that's, that's negative. And I don't dwell on negative ideas. Now you see, see what and and it's what am I talking about? Positive. I always try to be positive. I don't make it always.
9: Okay, but this was you know this is really a <clears throat> excuse me has affected my uh, my whole life. Uh,
5: nobody is perfect. Could I, I do it over again? Would I have? Oh, hindsight's beautiful. Fifty years later, I can say this was a mistake. Yeah. Well, so was World War I a mistake.
9: So, why do you think it's been so hard for us to talk about this in your estimation?
5: Largely because you never asked about it. You never asked about it. It was an unpleasant part of my life, and I, I don't particularly want to delve into it. It's Although kind
9: of like he refuses to take any responsibility, just sitting here with my dad and getting to ask him questions about my lobotomy is the happiest moment of my life. Well, I want to thank you for uh, for doing this with me. I really do. I, I never thought that this would ever happen.
5: Well, you see, miracles occur.
9: Actually, what I wanted to do was tell you that I, I love you very
5: well, much. Well, what, whatever made you think, I didn't know that. No, okay. well, You're shaped up pretty good. And I feel very
9: happy about
5: it. That's what I want to hear.
9: After 2,500 operations, Walter Freeman performed his finalized pick lobotomy on a housewife named Helen Mortensen in February 1967. She died of a brain hemorrhage, and Freeman's career was finally over. But he never lost faith. He sold his home and spent the rest of his days traveling the country in a camper, visiting old patients, trying desperately to prove his procedure had transformed thousands of lives for the better. Walter Freeman died of cancer in 1972. To those few who remember his name, most think of him as a monster.
3: I don't know who could have perceived this procedure as a miracle cure. The only thing I see that came out of it was hurt and pain for a lot of people.
9: Rebecca Welch's mother, Anita, was lobotomized by Dr. Walter Freeman for postpartum depression in
3: 1953. You're all dressed up today.
9: <laughs> After spending most of her life in mental institutions, today Anita McGee lives in a nursing home in Birmingham, Alabama. Rebecca visits her every week. She believes Walter Freeman's lobotomy destroyed her mother's life.
3: I personally think that something in Dr. Freeman wanted to be able to conquer people and take away who they were. What was that song, Mom? Can we sing that one today? You are my sunshine, my
2: only sunshine. She's there,
3: but she's not there.
9: today. Rebecca brings along her husband David. They've been married 19 years, but he's never been here before. Never laid eyes on his mother-in-law.
3: Basically, it's been so painful. I've tried to stay very far away from it for a long time. Kind of like if you leave it alone, it'll go away. But it never goes away.
9: So what has changed your mind about hiding from it
3: now? You. Do you know how many people you're championing? Do you know how many people that can't do what you're doing and you're doing it for them?
9: It does wonders to know that other people have the same pain. The loss. The loss that you can't ever get made of. After two years of searching, my journey is finally over. I'll never know what I lost in those 10 minutes with Dr. Freeman and his ice pick. By some miracle, it didn't turn me into a zombie, crush my spirit, or kill me. But it did affect me, deeply. Walter Freeman's operation was supposed to relieve suffering. In my case, it did just the opposite. Ever since my lobotomy, I felt like a freak, ashamed. But sitting in this room with Rebecca Welch and her mom, I know that my suffering is over. I know my lobotomy didn't touch my soul. For the first time, I feel no shame. I am, at last, at peace.
3: Don't my away.
9: This is Howard
3: Dully. That's it. <laughs>
1: Howard Dulley's story, My Lobotomy, was produced by Pia Kocher and Dave Isay at Sound Portraits Productions, with help from Larry Blood and Jack Elhai. The editor was Gary Covino, music by Rachmaninoff and Philip Glass. The story was produced with grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. There's an online history of lobotomy at soundportraits.org. joefrank.com is the web's home for Joe Frank's stories, and there's links to all the producers you heard in this hour at hearingvoices.com. I'm Scott Carrier.
7: Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Heberman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Durham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of SoundImagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.